This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Japanese conglomerate to acquire ARM. And Silicon Valley slams Trump. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening into another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with our friends at top500.org. I'm Addison Snell with Intersect 360 Research, and that's Michael Feldman back in his regular chair, the editor of top500.org. Welcome back, Michael. Thank you very much. I had a guest host, Andy Jones, last week helping me talk about the effect of Brexit on HPC. And one of the things we were talking about is on the supplier side, what HPC-related companies there were in in the U.K. And one of them that we talked about that had the biggest footprint that Andy mentioned was Arm Holdings. And lo and behold, top story this week, Michael, is is all of a sudden Arm Holdings gets acquired by a Japanese conglomerate called SoftBank. This is a company that's in a, a lot of different arenas. They, they have uh, probably the biggest one they'd be known for is having a a major share of uh, Sprint on the telecommunications side, but they've agreed to, or I should say Arm has agreed to be acquired by SoftBank for a total acquisition price of 24.3 billion pounds. That's 3.3 trillion yen or $31.4 billion. Yeah, a big amount of money for uh, two fairly big companies. The, the Japanese conglomerate SoftBank is is not all that much bigger than that. There are they're running at about $68 billion at tops. So now they're worth about $60 billion because the stock took a little hit after they announced the uh, the offer. And we should say that the acquisition hasn't been uh, closed yet. They made the offer, and ARMS looks like it's it's receptive to it. They've agreed to it. There's a little bit of uh, investor nervousness on the SoftBank side. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, I think we should talk about what this means for for ARM or what this could mean for ARM in the in the short term and long term. They're being acquired by basically a telco company. I mean, SoftBank has dabbled in certain other areas like internet services and a few other areas. Basically, they, they've invested in telco companies like Sprint. Uh, they've got some, some dealings with Vodafone. Uh, they own uh, all or most of Yahoo Japan, which is an internet service provider here in Japan. But um, this is the first time they've delved into anything in the sort of semiconductor area, even though Arm Holdings doesn't sell its own chips, they design them. So it's a different sort of buy for them, and it's a big one. It's the biggest one they've ever done. Um, so the investors did get a little nervous about that because they couldn't quite make out the strategy of what they were doing. Well, I can. I don't see a problem with this acquisition, and, and I think it's a yet another vote of confidence in ARM and the the ARM architecture, and in fact, that was one of the main points made by SoftBank in their uh, public presentation is that they're showing strong confidence in the ARM organization, the Cambridge headquarters in the U.K. They plan to double the U.K.-based headcount of ARM over the next five years. Now, no word on whether that's going to be through acquisition or through organic hiring, but still uh, looking at uh, increasing that Cambridge presence for ARM holdings. Uh, with related to the, the Brexit uh, topic, it should be noted that Brexit kind of the Brexit news, even though it's not official yet, helped this happen because the pound devalued, right? So it made it a little bit cheaper for, for SoftBank to come in and acquire ARM. But in terms of where they take it, I, I think that there's a lot of areas that they look at for 
for arms specifically that that are related to uh, to telecom and to related to Internet of Things and mobile, and they cite those as the prime drivers for this. Together with, uh, quite notably, the enterprise market. They talk about enterprise networking and enterprise servers as as major areas for growth. Yeah, in the news, I think the main focus was on the the growth space, which they're looking at as the Internet of Things, IoT. Um, I think that was, I think that's what the the company really got excited about. They they saw Arm as a company that that's very healthy. It was it's growing at a at a at a great clip just on on the backs of the mobile device space. And now they're seeing IoT as sort of the next big growth area. That's uh, that's Arm is very well positioned for, and and they're seeing that as a as a great investment. But as far as what it means to SoftBank like you brought in Telco and that they do have this uh, this area but it, it won't necessarily help any of their Telco companies that they've, they've invested in uh, directly um, it's not like they're going to they're going to take ARM chips and only keep them for as a strategic or a competitive advantage for these things it's, it's I'm sure they they need to sell to the entire space even to the the telcos companies that are competing against them, but <clears throat> um, it is sort of a. I think what what really worried some of the investors was they were taking on more debt. I mean, our, our SoftBank had bought into uh, to Sprint and some of these other investments they've made, and they've taken on some of that. And this sort of adds to that. And uh, as far as now investing in those companies like Sprint, which which needed some. Uh, help to turn around its fortunes. There's going to be less money available. So, some of the uh, some of the investor analysts or financial analysts didn't think this uh, was going to add much value short term. Was going to be a little risky, uh, even in the long term. Well, I mean, you're right that this does uh, utilize more debt and and utilizes a lot of the cash on hand that uh, the company already had. And in terms of the total acquisition price, 16.7 billion pounds uh, of the uh, of the total 24 billion dollar price is coming out of cash on hand. Then there's an extra 7.3 billion dollar loan. So you know, roughly two thirds, a little more than that of the of the money coming out of cash on hand, and then there's an additional loan. Now, to me, um, I, I don't worry so much about the added debt unless it gets to the point where servicing that debt is going to be harder because they get poor uh, pricing on the debt because it changes their debt-to-equity ratio. But presumably, I would assume that you know they've looked at that and came to some kind of terms with their lenders. Now, if anyone on their shareholder side is nervous about it, it's going to be, well, we kind of wanted to use that cash for something else. So then right. it becomes a question of what's the better return for that cash? Is it investing it in Sprint or is it buying ARM? And you know, to me... It's, I see a lot of upside to buying ARM, and you know, to, to say that uh, you would have gotten that much more out of it by pouring it into Sprint, I don't know enough about Sprint, but it seems like a dubious proposition to me. Yeah, I think the the deal might look a lot more intelligent if the long term strategy is to sell off some of their lower performing investments, and that's what they they may do just to generate that money. Now they're going to take losses on those investments, but maybe that's that's the strategy. They feel like those aren't worth pursuing and arm is and because it's it's on a nice growth curve and if, if that's the case that makes more sense but i don't think that was presented to the investors when they 
when they sort of presented the strategy, they just presented the upside of of ARM and and how well they were doing. So um, we'll sort of see how this plays out. But there is there is some uh, trepidation on the on the shareholder side, and in fact, you know, there might be somewhat of a revolt there. Although uh, the CEO of the company owns about 19% of the company, so he's the biggest shareholder, so he could block a, a lot of that, but maybe perhaps not all of it. We should also mention that one of the co-founders of ARM, Herben Hauser, doesn't like this deal. He thinks the, soft, the SoftBank's debt will uh, be funded by earnings from ARM, which could have otherwise been used to reinvest in that company, um, which is certainly uh, something that could happen. Now, if ARM grows at a great enough clip, it's, it's not going to matter in the long term, but certainly in the short term, uh, you know, arms profitable and it's going to be used uh, f- for that in some manner. So that's sort of a valid criticism. And he overall he doesn't like that deal because of that. He thinks arms going to be the cash cow for SoftBank at least uh, for the for the near term, and then uh, that's going to hurt arms uh, sort of R and D and and uh, effort to to produce new products. Uh, yeah, but I think SoftBank anticipated exactly this line. If you go through the presentation that that they offered publicly around this announcement, they showed a lot of their earnings numbers, both for SoftBank as a whole and for uh, Arm Holdings, showing that you know SoftBank has a, a current uh, earnings before income tax of ten billion dollars, six point three billion of that coming from. Mobile with a 54% EBITDA margin, you know those are good numbers. And then on the ARM side, they've got this this great track record of eight straight years of revenue growth and six straight years of profit growth, reaching 661 million dollars US in profit in 2015. So I think they're trying to imply that. Relative to the size of the debt they're taking on, this is still a, a really worthwhile investment. Yeah, and on the uh, also on the upside, they're not going to. It doesn't sound like they're going to meddle in the in the arm um, management or or uh, uh, roadmap. They're going to leave all the um, executive team and all the uh, engineers and and such in in the UK intact, and it's going to basically operate as an independent company, which is right. sort of the the way these uh, conglomerates work when they invest they don't necessarily meddle in the internal affairs of the individual companies other than if they're buying or selling them you know they're they're breaking them up or selling them which is doesn't appear to be the case here no they said they they've said they're going to keep it independent now to your point with telco it does provide a synergy in that if telco is growing if mobile is growing if iot is growing and they're providing an opportunity for arm then they get to dip out of both buckets and i think that's what they're looking at here yeah uh, i think that's that's probably the strategy here but but, but there's a big it, part of this i want to talk about that we haven't gotten to yet and that's the hpc side of things because let's not forget just a few weeks ago we were talking about some of the big news from isc was fujitsu announcing that they were going to go arm on their post k architecture and now you've got a japanese company acquiring arm holdings let's talk about this for a second cuz i think that's very interesting and you're you're in japan for all of this michael yeah, in fact, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't even know this company existed, SoftBank, before I got here, but they're plastered all over here. I mean, it's a relatively new company in the scheme of things, but they're, they've are they been very active. Um, I don't think they have any 
connection with Fujitsu other than now they they would if they if they close the acquisition here they'll they'll be with a company or that also Fujitsu is now collaborating with in a very intense way because of the news you just brought up that they're going to they're going to build this HPC version of the ARM chip but I don't think there's a connection beyond that I think that's mostly coincidental as far as the future of this um basically SoftBank is an international conglomerate that's based out of Tokyo here and uh, I don't see a big upside for Fujitsu just because it's now owned by a Japanese-based conglomerate. I agree with the first thing you said and disagree with the second thing you said. I agree that it was co- co- probably coincidental. I don't think SoftBank is going out saying, well, geez, Fujitsu announced this. Now we better go do that. Uh, it's probably a coincidence. But I, I disagree because I think there is a, an upside here because just like – China is going its own route with internally developed uh, processors and architectures for supercomputing. I think this acquisition opens the door for a nationalized supercomputing strategy for Japan that uses technologies that are owned by or controlled by or developed by Japanese institutions. And even if Arm Holdings is still based in the UK, there's a way now for the Japanese government to view this as a Japanese technology that they can further the support of in the march toward and beyond Exascale. Well, I mean, theoretically that's the case, but I don't see the Japanese government interacting with an international conglomerate that way. I mean, I don't know much about uh, sort of the corporate structure here in Japan, but uh, it, it seems like like most Western company co- countries, the, the government sort of has a hands-off approach to a lot of this. And I'm not sure how much they're willing to to look upon this as sort of a, a Japanese property in the sense that they now – you know, feel like they have ownership of this technology. Um, you see, and, that, and that's where I disagree with you. I think who owns it winds up really being on the mind of these different governments. Look at the x86 transition from IBM to Lenovo. All of those HPC people were still, you know, sitting in Raleigh, North Carolina, doing the same things they were doing before, but there were plenty of U.S. government buyers who were now prepared to say that's a Chinese company. We're not buying from them. This is entirely the same thing in the other direction in another country. Well, yeah, but I think that was the case because the Chinese government does uh, does have a stake in all the supposedly independent Chinese-based companies. I think there is that connection there um, because it's it's that kind of a government, whereas Jap- Japan and the Japanese government is not that kind of a government. So I, I see the connection with Lenovo or any Chinese-based companies that everybody's going to be a little nervous about because the the government uh, is is much more of a controlling entity uh, because of the structure of, of, of what it does. But here, I don't know. I mean, we'll see it go forward, uh, but I don't see anything. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to see arm as a, uh, as a Japanese property going forward. And certainly the, the Brits don't want that. I think they're going to keep it as their own as far as uh, sort of culturally and, and uh, from a business standpoint, but we'll see. I mean, a lot of things can happen here and this will, you know, certainly change the mix. Um, but I mean, it's interesting enough for Fujitsu and maybe that'll help them in, in some obscure way, but I don't see it helping in, in a, in a fundamental way. 
Does the SoftBank acquisition of ARM pave the way for a nationalized ARM-based supercomputing uh, exascale plan in Japan? Join Team Michael or Team Addison on Twitter <laughs> and tell us what you think uh, at This Week in HPC. That'll be fun. Let's get to our other story, Michael, quickly. It's not a very long one, but it is a very interesting one with coming back to the U.S. side, the the, the Republican National Convention has been going on this week. Trump is now the official Republican nominee for president of the United States. And there's a, now an open letter that you reported on at top500.org from Silicon Valley leaders saying, please, no, not Trump, right? Yeah, it was the own Silicon Valley version of never Trump. I mean, it, the, the funny thing is, and I think we both noticed that there was no endorsement of the other candidate, Hillary Clinton, but... The, the presumptive message, candidate at this point. She won't be official till next week. But the message here against Donald Trump was was scathing. I mean, basically, they were saying nobody should should support this guy. He would be terrible for technology innovation in the U.S. if he was selected for a variety of reasons, which they didn't go into great detail about. But they were centered basically around his uh, stance on immigration, his stance on internet censorship, and uh, just his general stance on maybe government um, government investment in in things like R and D and other investments in technology infrastructure. They don't like those stances, and they think that is going to is really create a horrendous environment for for innovation, and certainly for the the companies that rely on that innovation, which are all the IT companies in Silicon Valley and elsewhere in the U.S. So. Um, yeah, if you if you read my article, I wrote it up. There's a link to that letter as, as well as a little write up that I did in my analysis, and it's it's quite scathing. It was 145 uh, basically tech leaders, entrepreneurs, uh, even some engineers in there, uh, even some big names. You got like Steve Wozniak uh, in there, the former Apple uh, owner, and Vince Cerf from uh, the Internet Pioneer, the guy who helped found some of the Internet fundamentals, and Wikipedia founder Jimmy Wales, as well as a lot of CEOs of some of the smaller and uh, medium-sized Internet companies are in there. So a lot of people signed up to this, and nobody really um, uh, nobody really had a good answer for this in the Trump campaign or anywhere else. There's there's only a few people in the in the Silicon Valley. Uh, sort of community that really has come out to support Trump. I mean, there there might be some people that that are keeping quiet, but there doesn't seem to be much support in uh, in the U.S. tech sector here. Right. This letter says directly, among other things, Trump would be a disaster for innovation. His vision stands against the open exchange of ideas, free movement of people, and productive engagement with the outside world that is critical to our economy and that provide the foundation for innovation and growth. The letter then goes on to talk about uh, specific areas like immigration, like uh, his position on women and minorities, like his positions on possible Internet censorship that all lead them to say, uh, please not Trump, without ever mentioning Hillary Clinton or any kind of a direct endorsement there. This is more of a, a never Trump. Now, this brings up a couple interesting points. One is it's not clear how many of these 145 leaders would have voted for any Republican on the ticket. We don't know what their normal political allegiances are. But more to the point, this has already shaped up to be the most negative American presidential race I can think of. Now, people always find 
uh, a certain amount of muckraking and negative campaigning to distasteful level. But, geez, the amount of this that's coming uh, that's coming down the wire to be not Hillary versus never Trump on both sides. It, it's just really uh, astonishing. And the Republican National Convention that's been going on this week is broken to the same extent that there are no former Republican presidents or vice presidents in attendance at the convention. The guy who most narrowly, uh, Trump most narrowly beat Ted Cruz, spoke yesterday and got booed off the stage when he refused to endorse Trump. It's it's just crazy right now in this uh, election cycle. and And this is just yet another... Uh, negative piece of propaganda on top of the pile. Yeah, I mean, the level of animosity is something I can't remember seeing in my 50-plus years of following elections. Um, it is sort of incredible. We we should mention uh, I, one person from Silicon Valley that does support Trump, and that's Peter Thiel, the co-founder of PayPal, and he's actually at the convention. I think he he spoke yesterday or he's will a, speak He's a Trump today. delegate. He's a Trump delegate. I'll speak on his behalf. Um, but he's sort of the lone, sort of the exception that proves the rule. There's, there's nobody else that's come out. But he's he's very much in favor of Trump, and he speaks for him. And, uh, you know, he's uh, sort of against his the culture of his own industry there, which, you know, Silicon Valley tends to be rather a liberal place. It's full of not necessarily Democrats, but certainly sort of the, of the libertarian wing of uh spectrum of the of the democratic party if there is such a thing or you could even say the republican party but it's not you know it, it's not a conservative enclave in any stretch of the imagination so it it's not that surprising they would come out against the republican candidate but i don't remember them ever doing so in such a way before as this where they basically said this this guy would be a disaster for the for the country and for technology in in the u.s so this is a little bit of out of the ordinary certainly and to see you know basically dozens of these people you know put their name to this letter you know they might get some blowback from some of their customers but they feel strongly enough about it that they 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 made themselves public about this well, I'll give you my own perspective as a small businessman uh, for what it's worth. Having owned my own small company for the last seven years, I will say that the Obama administration, uh, it really increased the burden on a small businessman in America. There, the increases in payroll taxes, increases in health care costs, increases in my own personal taxes have all been very difficult to bear. And I think Hillary Clinton brings us more of the same. And that's very difficult for us. But on the other side, the points made in this letter about Trump being against women, against minorities, against the open exchange of ideas, his policies being ranty and incoherent, that scares me more. I'm really very moderate as a politician. I listen to both sides. I try to find who I can agree with most often, most of the time. I don't like this election that's sitting in front of me, but... If this election happened right now, I'd have to say I'm with her. I can't get behind the idea of Trump for a lot of the same reasons that are in this letter. I wasn't one of the Silicon Valley CEOs that that got to sign it, but I, I do agree with a lot of the sentiments in it, I'd have to say. Yeah, I, I think what you're reflecting is, is what a lot, a lot of the electorate is. I mean, even what these guys wrote up in the letter, it's there's – there was no endorsement of Clinton here. I think there's not a lot of people that are that enthusiastic about it, even people like me who tend to be on the progressive side of these uh, these issues. But 
this this I think is going to be an election where people are going to choose you know the pe- the person they're uh, the most comfortable with rather than the person they're for, and uh, it's 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 just one of those elections, and I think this is uh, this is just going to be a year for that. It's going to be a terrible. Uh, election season because there's going to be a lot of negativity but uh, at the end of it I don't think a lot of people are going to be happy (laughs) (laughs) is happiness too much to hope for in this country next week on HPC (laughs) yeah (laughs) well Michael I appreciate the coverage as always they've got some big news uh, and uh, it was fun to talk about we ran a little long this week but hopefully our listeners hung in there and they can tune in again next week you've been listening to this week in HPC You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.